being arrested for who you are rather than what you do is one of the hallmarks of what I would say separates a dictatorship from a free society where you are innocent until proven guilty. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Our guest today is Mark Voss, the founder and executive director of the Regimes Museum, which is a culmination of an effort to collect preserve and archive material and artifacts from some of the most notorious regimes of the 20th century. It is both a museum and an educational institution that offers resources to scholars and students while applying the lessons of the past to the present. Now, I'm sure you are enjoying your weekly dose of Cold War history and you'd like to continue to do so. I'm asking if you wouldn't mind supporting us by paying at least three US dollars a month. It's very straightforward and you can stop whenever you want. Plus, monthly supporters get the marvellous Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. You can also help the podcast by leaving written reviews in Apple Podcasts as well as sharing us on social media. So back to today's episode. Mark and I have a varied chat about the nature of regimes, East German recycling, Romanian technology, Stasi coercion techniques, amongst many others. We welcome Mark Voss to our Cold War conversation. I am actually originally from Germany. Uh, I still speak it, and it's one of the subjects that I teach uh, at the university. And so dictatorship has always kind of been something luring in the background of of my life for a long, long time. Originally, I got into history through uh, maritime history. I was interested in the great ocean liners of the late 1800s, early 1900s, like, you know, the Titanic. And uh, my favorite ship was the Lusitania. And when I was a kid, I was always upset with the fact that the Germans sunk my favorite ship. And so I wanted to understand why. And then I discovered, oh, well, turns out this event called World War One was going on. And well, one thing led to another. And uh, here we are, with a Regimes Museum that now focuses on the phenomenon of tyranny and dictatorship across history and culture. So it's a kind of a development there. It took a, a number of years to get to this point, but um, I also teach sociology at the university level. So I like incorporating some of my uh, theoretical concepts uh, into studying what causes things like genocide, wars, and all the atrocities associated with tyranny uh, in the first place. Uh, Regimes Museum is hosting, for the first time ever, a a Berlin trip. uh, We're collaborating with a company called World Strides to put together a historical education experience uh, that, as far as we can tell, hasn't been done like this before. And uh, it's going from July 16, 2020. It's about eight days of pure history. Anyone can learn uh, or can join this, actually. Uh, We have uh, anywhere from college students to just private professionals going out there that want to join us. 
And if anyone's interested in joining Regime's Museum on a trip to Berlin to talk about World War II to Cold War era history, uh, this trip might be of interest to them. And uh, the expenses depend on where you are. It's literally open to anybody. And if you're coming with us here from the United States, uh, the airline ticket is factored into the overall cost. So if you visit our website, regimesmuseum.org slash travel, you'll be able to find the information about the trip. Uh, the amount you pay will differ depending on where you're located. So if you're already in Europe and you want to join us in Berlin for an eight-day excursion uh, for literally a hands-on history tour, uh, then everyone's welcome to join us on this. And uh, the, the overall cost will change because the airline fee will not have to be included in that. So if anyone's out there interested and wanting to join us in Berlin in uh, July 2020, we would love to have you. And uh, I think it'd be a very exciting experience because we are doing a lot and covering a lot of ground in history while we're there. Yeah, no, I've looked at the itinerary and it is a uh, really interesting uh, tour you've got organized there. I'll add links to this in the show notes as well. The, the Regimes Museum, what, what is it? Well, originally it started as, as an effort to collect and preserve the material culture of governments and countries that have gone off the wrong path at least from the the modern sense of the of the under of our understanding of what it means to be uh free citizens in a society that is that that promotes human rights and originally the idea was that you know you have a lot of cold war museums out there there are a lot of world war ii museums world war one museums uh holocaust museums and they're all very, very important, and they do a wonderful job in telling those stories. But the one thing that's never really been addressed is the the phenomena itself, the things behind what causes things like the Holocaust, like World War II and, and crimes against humanity in the first place. Uh, there have been studies done before in the past by, for example, the late Richard Rummel, who uh, wrote a actually a few studies on democide uh, which is, in short, death by government uh, and non-war-related deaths specifically. They're literally deaths by government for political reasons. And he calculated uh, the numbers of people killed in the 20th century for political reasons alone. And I thought, you know, this is all very interesting research, and I think we need to have a place that synthesizes from an interdisciplinary perspective all these various, I guess, phenomena would be a good word, to understand and comprehend the phenomenon of dictatorship from literally every possible angle you can. And so the Regimes Museum is kind of a culmination of this. And what we do with collecting our material culture of uh, the material culture, I should say, of uh, dictatorships is trying to piece together the mosaic of what life is like under authoritarian and totalitarian power structures. And so, you know, we we have kind of a difficult mission there because there are so many dictatorships out there uh, throughout history that um, it's actually become impossible for us to collect everything. So when I started the collecting aspect of the museum, I started off thinking, okay, well, what are the most easily accessible and collectible items that we can get? And 
there's a bit of irony here too, because it's generally World War II related material that's very available. But then you have the well, the the issue of dealing with a lot of reproductions and fakes that get 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 up in the mix there. So our collections range from Imperial Japan from World War II, uh, fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, East Germany, the Soviet Union, and the Warsaw Pact. So pre World War II and post World War II Soviet Union, and North Korea, Saddam's Iraq, and uh, I think I'm missing a few other ones here, but uh, generally areas that we found were collectible enough for us to create an archive around so you're you you sort of concentrate on those 20th century dictatorships um the collection does but we're not limiting ourselves to the regimes i just mentioned Uh, we have a small collection of stuff from the the marcos regime we have some items from uh, libya but you know it's it's nothing it's not enough to build a, a collection or an archive out of at this point so those would be areas that we would want more information, more material, more eyewitness accounts from, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's a long-term effort, this project. So eventually we will probably get some items from these uh, areas as well. And what, how, what is your, your definition of a dictatorship? That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, it's funny because people don't ask me that very often. And I think it has to do with the fact that we have a certain understanding of what dictatorship means. But I boil that de- that definition down to um, my, my perspective is largely formed from Hannah Arendt's look at what, the, what tyranny is and uh, Machiavelli's interpretation of how one should rule, how a prince should rule a, a principality. And it boils down to our definition of what we mean by power. If we look at power as getting someone to do something for you and using any means necessary to do that, I see dictatorships in a a more 20th century light as a personality cult, a, a dictator or a group of people, a power elite, if you will, who seek their own agenda and their own aims at the expense of others, and they use any means necessary to to do this. And a dictatorship is generally a negative thing for anyone who believes in individual rights and well, human rights by extension. And by, by maintaining and expanding their power by any means necessary, dictators tend to err on the side of using force or the threat of force. And so we wanted to explore this particular power arrangement in greater detail from an interdisciplinary and also an international perspective as well, from people who've experienced it both as you know ordinary bystanders to the victims of regimes and to those that actually benefited from it as well. Okay. Okay. No, that, that, that's interesting to, to understand the definition because I mean, what one of, we, we run a Facebook discussion group and, um, the moderators have a, a constant uh, challenge uh, to sort of allow people to have certain viewpoints up to a certain certain point. And, and an area where you can get conflict on is, is for example, Chile with um, Pinochet and Allende. Yes. And, you know, wh- whether, you know, one or both were... Uh, dictatorship, but how how would you in, interpret that? Would you say that Allende's 
government was a uh, dictatorship of sorts as well as Pinochet's? Well, there are there are certain aspects of dictatorships that you kind of find across a spectrum to varying degrees. Um, you know, if if you even, for example, some people still celebrate Benito Mussolini and we see him as a dictator that is very evil, although in terms of how he oppressed people and the amount of people he killed, it may not have been as high as some other dictators. Uh, Pinochet and Allende can be seen in a similar light as well. We're talking about a, a set of givens, if you will, that a political personality, whether they come from the military realm or from, the, from politics that are elected, of pursuing their own agenda of basically extracting the wealth of the nation for their own personal gain and use, um, in other words, corruption the levels of corruptions that exist in these systems and the levels of political oppression are some things that we would look at. And another thing we would look at is, well, are the prisons, because every society on the planet has prisons, but what are they being used for specifically? Are they being used to incarcerate people for actions they have done? Or are they being used to incarcerate people for who they are? And that's, I think, one of the big differences between a country that runs and operates for example, a Western country would operate a prison to arrest people for crimes that they have committed and been conv- or that they have been convicted of. And in a dictatorship, you might find people being arrested for who they are. Let's say, you know, they may be journalists, or they might be, if you're you know, living in Nazi Germany, if you're Jewish, you are being interned because you are Jewish, or because you are a journalist, or if you're under Pol Pot's regime, you were arrested and executed in a lot of cases because you wore something as banal as glasses. Uh, so being arrested for who you are rather than what you do is one of the hallmarks of what I would say separates a dictatorship from a free society where you are innocent until proven guilty. Um, yeah. So we, we look at those aspects of how how does a government that we define as dictatorship perceive people who don't fit in with their agenda and what they do with them? Right. Okay. Because I was going to say, obviously, there's various shades of grey, but with that definition, it's a pretty clear line to be able to draw there with that with that definition. It's it's definitely much more clearer. Um, again, you you have to think of how to how do you judge a regime in the first place? Um, if you judge a, a regime during the time that they existed the moral and social axioms that existed on the planet just across different cultures are different than they are today. And so, you know, a lot of people are tempted to judge uh, historical time periods with current moral and social axioms. And these are, of course, subject to change because cultures are subject to change uh, all the time. And we don't take that into consideration. So we have, at least in the West, I know we have a certain understanding of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Uh, for example, we value freedom of speech, uh, especially here in the United States. Freedom of speech is something we value tremendously. Um, but then we, which is something you haven't seen a lot until more recently, is uh, the issue of censorship and what thoughts and expressions are acceptable and what thoughts and expressions are not acceptable. And while I think the debate is not really the, the issue, 
the issue of censoring people for beliefs that are unpopular uh, becomes a slippery slope, right? So how do we interpret Pinochet's regime today if we use our more modern moral compass based in Magna Carta or common law or constitutional law, we would say that a lot of the the activities conducted by Pinochet's regime were absolutely criminal and unacceptable, right? The, the spiriting away of innocent people and basically torturing them to death in, um, in camps that were set up, that is something that a free society or, or even Western democracies would not find acceptable. But I think the debate around dictatorship is much more complex than, than even this, because um, as I think a lot of people are now discovering more recently since uh, the phenomenon of tyranny has become, has become more popular in the mainstream, or more interesting, I think, for, the, for people, is dictatorships do not exist in isolation, right? They exist in an international community. They are usually supported also internationally, and a lot of people forget that even Nazi Germany was largely supported by the outside as well. I mean, you had uh, prominent Americans, you had prominent Br prominent Britons that were in support of the Nazi regime prior to World War II. And this is something you find across the spectrum. Even Pinochet's regime had received help from the United States in one form or another. And uh, this goes for other dictatorships as well, too. So evil regimes work with one another sometimes. They also fight one another. But even Western democracies have, in one form or another, interacted with dictatorships that we would now probably find improper. Right. Yeah. No, un understood. Understood. So with the regime's museum, is it a physical museum where people can see your exhibits? We actually, it's a good question. Um, we do a lot of traveling exhibitions. So we had an exhibition running over the summer uh, called Threads of Utopia at Cal State Fullerton uh, out here in Southern California. And uh, this traveling exhibition is one that just goes around from one place to another. Uh, we currently have offices in Orange County. So it's not really a physical place to see our exhibitions. But we are working on that. We have a, a donor we're working with right now who is um, going to help us find a more permanent location that makes our collections even more accessible than they currently are. But for the time being, until we have that all figured out, and regrettably, I can't give you too many details on that at this point, but um, no. we, uh, we do a lot of educational programming. We go to high schools and middle schools uh, for World War II days and Cold War days, which are experiential learning events where we set up, uh, for example, for Cold War days, we, we go out to a, a middle school in uh, Victorville every year where we uh, set up the classroom in socialist themes. We, we put up a bunch of material culture from the socialist East Germany. And uh, the children, then the students that come through the classroom, they get an East German passport uh, with questions on them. And in this passport, they have to answer questions of, you know, when was the Berlin Wall built? When did it come down? What was the Stasi Suka police? And as they move through our exhibition, they learn about the Stasi, the SED, the Socialist Unity Party. They learn about the phenomena that is very, uh, well, very Stasi, if you will. It's a, I'm sure you've heard of it before, called Zersetzung. Um, which we can actually talk about because I think the modern form of dictatorship uses a lot of Zersetzung 
to get to suppress people uh, over the old way. And uh, we, we can talk about that a little bit as well. Um, and so students learn a little bit about what East Germany actually was through eyewitness accounts of people who lived there. Uh, and these are people who were suppressed by the regime, but also people who didn't really have any problems with the East German government at all. And I think that's an aspect of uh, dictatorship that you don't ever hear, is what about those people that weren't suppressed by the, by the government, that weren't victims of tyranny? And their story we want to tell as well, because they, they are part of the mosaic that allows people to understand that, you know, as people like to think in a very cliche sense that dictators are all madmen or crazy, I would fundamentally disagree with that. I think a lot of these regimes were very logical and rational. Their rationale might have been dramatically different from where, where our values are, are located, of course. But these people aren't crazy. They know exactly what they're doing. And some people were benefactors of these dictatorships, and even ordinary people were. So the way people remember East Germany in Germany uh, depends on who you talk to. If you talk to West Germans, they'll say, oh, it was a terrible dictatorship. But if you talk to East Germans, they say, well, it wasn't that bad, actually. It was quite a lovely country to live in, and we didn't have to worry about crimes and things of that nature. And I think this is a part of the story that people absolutely need to hear because you cannot understand dictatorship just from the angle of repression and mass murder and genocide, which are all, of course, hallmarks and very important to understand. But what about the people that did fit in? We need their stories. We need to understand why they went along with it in order to understand the system and the environment in its totality, and not just nitpicking uh, aspects of a regime that are so abhorrent that they're, you're more likely to focus on the abhorrent stuff. We have to also focus on the things that actually benefited people that lived under these countries. And you know that's extremely controversial, understandably. But if you want to understand why some ordinary Germans became torturers and murderers under the Nazi system, you have to understand what motivated them and what made them go along with it at the end of the day. And that, and some of the, the things you described there are certainly echoed in a lot of the interviews that, that I do, that, you know, whilst the, there's a lot of focus on the Stasi and the fact that East Germans couldn't travel – and that area that, you know, a lot of people had very happy childhoods um, and didn't really rub up against the regime. They went to their factory or workplace and did their job and had free childcare and just got on with things. Yes, there were shortages, but they just sort of accepted those as perhaps the price of, um, you know, employment and uh, all the the social care that they have. Yeah, that, that's, that's quite right. I mean, a lot of East Germany, uh, East Germans rather, that I've spoken with have, have said the same thing. Oh, well, we had, we had a very good childhood. We had family vacations. Yeah, there were shortages and, and uh, you know, our buildings weren't as well kept as some in the West, but all in all, we had a very decent life. And I think those are the kinds of people whose stories we need. Uh, the irony is that those stories and people that tell me those stories always say, oh, but it's so boring. It doesn't matter. But I say, 
those are precisely the things that do matter because they're not really a focus of research. They're not really a focus of, of um, well, I think Hannah Arendt talks about it when she mentions the, the concept of the banality of evil, right? Uh, it boils down to mm. some sociological phenomena that most people kind of just take for granted. And I think in dictatorships, you have the same phenomena. People take for granted the situation that they grow up in. And it's a very difficult thing to ask someone to extract themselves from the culture that they grew up in, especially in the space and time that they happen to live in and understand their social realities. And, you know, one of the main reasons I started the Regimes Museum is because one, and this is of course, a, this is part of how mu dictatorship is processed uh, as as a culture and individually, is the destruction of the material and symbolic culture of dictatorships when they collapse. A lot of people think, oh, you know, this is great. It's wonderful that this dictator has fallen and that all these trappings of power and these symbols that were feared and loathed are now being destroyed in a celebration of happiness. That is a part of the healing process of coming to terms with that past. But I think in the long run, that while it is necessary to process it this way, it it is detrimental in the sense that the historian loses access to that material that the social scientist loses the material culture of this regime that helped define it and allows us to understand it. And, you know, I liken our mission similar to what an archaeologist does. You know, a lot of what we know about the ancient Egyptians is because of the material culture that was left behind. And in order to understand dictatorship, we want to preserve that material culture and Hopefully, and you know, you can argue the success of this, and again, it depends on where you come from as well and your own experiences of how well we do this. But we want to show these items, display them in a way that they would have been at the time that they were created so people understand the power. You know, something that I always get as, as, a, as a director of this museum is, oh, you know, your Nazi collection is quite impressive. You have all these really powerful uniforms. You know, the Nazis really had the best uniforms. I get that very, very often. And I say, well, if you look at the intent. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War. Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Of the Nazis, they were, um, at least, uh, you know, again, how it depends on how you define totalitarianism, but they were totalitarian in the sense that the Nazis wanted to control every aspect of human activity. 
And so that meant Gleichschaltung is the, the, the term they use, the coordinating and putting everything onto one track. And the communists did something very similar as well. And they use different names, of course, but uh, of getting everyone to go along with the logic of the whatever personality cult happens to be in charge. And uh, that, that lends something back to Cold War history on the topic of Glasnost and what Glasnost actually means, not just Gorbachev's definition of Glasnost, but it's actually more of a Russian phenomenon if, if, you, if you want to go into that a little bit later. But when people tell me today, oh, the Nazi uniforms were so beautiful, I like them. I'm like, well, that was the point, right? The Nazis branded literally everything. I, th- I think you're right. I think... You know, the Nazis certainly have the, dare I say, highest brand awareness of um, a a dictatorship. Everybody recognises that symbol. Yet if you showed a load of people the the hammer compasses and wheat sheaf of the logo of uh, East Germany, not many, well, some people would identify it, but you certainly wouldn't get the level of awareness that the swastika has. Yeah, that's that's quite right. And I'm, I'm not sure if you, you were familiar with this uh, debate that was going on in Germany a few years ago, where they were talking about actually banning East German symbols the way they banned the Nazi symbols in Germany and actually make it punishable to show them. Uh, I think the Germans were the only ones to actually have that debate. Uh, and you're absolutely correct. The way people remember a lot of the communist regimes is in a favorable light. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, the, the Nazis were – the Nazi crimes were very much international in scope and involved so many different kinds of victims that there are so many different remembrance communities that deal with that past that Nazi crimes are basically – international and can be argued and you know deliberated on and 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 uh, debated on by many many different people and the crimes of the communist regimes were more hidden i would say that in terms of ethnic cleansing stalin was uh, was very adept at this as well and of course of of mass incarceration and 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 murder but the systems do still differentiate from one another for example you know the, the soviet gulag administration they they never had extermination camps like belzec or sobibor or treblinka um but uh, there are also some similarities to uh, between the gulag and the concentration camp systems on some on some areas and i think it's important to to note that Part of why the Nazi crimes are so well remembered is because we've had access to a lot of those archives. It's because we have millions of eyewitnesses. Uh, we've had everything from American soldiers that fought against the Nazis to Holocaust survivors to ordinary Germans that just went along with it for whatever their psychological processes were for justifying what they did. Uh, if they were willing to speak about it, we have their stories. The The way other countries have processed their totalitarian pasts has been very different. I mean, if you go to Iraq today, you you hear the – it's a form of cognitive dissonance almost. It's You hear people say, oh, you know, things are better now, but Saddam was we, – we missed the, the Saddam era quite profoundly. And these are – two opinions that are held at equal value simultaneously. And that that can get very confusing in this uh, almost schizophrenic, upside-down world of dictatorship. We have to boil it back to 
the value system that existed in those cultures and how dictatorships ultimately co-opt those value systems and pervert them towards their own aims and goals. And I think that's another aspect that is not really often focused on, right? A lot of people talk about Nazi history or German history specifically as the Sonderweg, right? The, the special path towards the Holocaust, if you will, saying that the Germans were, as a people, destined to ultimately commit the crimes that happened in the Holocaust. But, you know, that's, that's one perspective. I, I would argue that things like the Holocaust can happen anywhere. And I think, especially since World War II, given how many genocides we have seen on the planet, that has already been kind of shown that indeed genocides can happen anywhere and it really doesn't matter what society you are. Um, it's a question of cultural values and the types of values that are either inserted or replaced in a system that is, or in an environment that is taken over by a dictatorship. Um. Just trying to go back to the the Cold War um, uh, because it's really interesting um, stuff you're 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 saying there, and uh, definitely very much food for thought. But as as far as the Cold War is is concerned, and the, the items that you currently have in in your collection, what what would you say is the the most prized Cold War item you would have? Oh boy, uh, that that is not an easy question. Um, it can be more than one. We have a well. We one. I think one item that just kind of sticks out to me right now is we have a. A lot of people don't realize that one things the East Germans attempted to uh, salvage their economy with was IT. Uh, so the East Germans created their own computer technology, and while they're very rare to find nowadays, we we actually have a, a seventeen fifteen Robotron uh, computer with the original floppy disk still in place. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a funny little thing to look at considering how advanced our technology has come today uh, to see that the East Germans really did try and uh, what they managed to copy from uh, companies like IBM back in the day. You know, some East German computers were actually purchased outside East Germany, brought to the country and and used there, but the East Germans also created their own. And the uh, Robotron is, is one of the biggest tech companies that existed in the GDR. And uh, having one of those computers is it's a really a it's kind of a nostalgia trip even for me because I remember the uh, uh, the old computers we used to have in the 1990s, and uh, they they look they look similar to computers you would have found in in the West. I was just going to say, I think that's a good point you make, and it goes back to one of your earlier points, is the way that people look back using a modern lens rather than the, you know, a, a lens of, of the time. So you look back at that East German technology and you think, oh, that's really ancient. That looks really poor. But I think people do forget that, you know, you know the, the technology even in the West was at similar levels. Um, or certainly looked similar to some degree. A lot of the technology that the East Germans, and by extension, if you ever manage to do this, and, and I, honest, I would love to help you, but I have absolutely no idea how to reach them. I think maybe the best way to do it is through the publisher. 
But there is a, one of the biggest East, uh, not East German, the Romanian defectors from the Romanian secret police was a, uh, a general by the name of Ion Mihai Pacepa. And he wrote a book called Red Horizons, which is an absolute must read for anyone interested in the uh, hidden life of the Ceausescus. Uh, he, he mentioned that they would send for economic espionage, they would send Romanians and the East Germans, of course, did something similar. They would send people to the United States and to Western Europe to buy technology. Uh, so they would go to IBM and have them apply for jobs there and ultimately filter IBM technology back to the Soviet bloc in one form or another. And the East Germans did this as well. So you actually find some Western-made, some American-made technology. And of course, beyond that, they were using this to also reverse engineer a lot of the things that they were making, like the microprocessors. Um, turning, Making computers smaller was something that uh, the, the Soviets in general, the Soviet bloc, struggled with, right? The miniaturization of nuclear weapons in the West, for example, was something that we were way ahead of. And you look at the big Russian nuclear missiles, you know, they were significantly larger because they hadn't figured out the miniaturization process. And with just PCs and other computers, it was kind of the same deal. You know, a lot of these East German computers, I mean, gosh, some of the earlier models are still made out of wood, you know, which is, which makes sense because even in the West, you had computers that were largely built in wooden frames and whatnot. So some of that East German technology was was copied from Western designs. Yeah, and also in, in East Germany, and this was probably more from need than from any green credentials, but, you know, recycling of materials was on a much um, more general basis than was in the West at that time. Um, it depends on how you look at recycling, too, because East German recycling compared to how we recycle today looks uh, different, to say the least. Um, East German recycling would include a lot of people working on, let's say they have a, a problem with their car and they needed replacement parts. They wouldn't necessarily sell the car or throw the car away or whatever the process is. Uh, they would work on that car to keep it running as long as humanly possible because of the supply cuts and the shortages that existed in the GDR. People would recycle old technology and sometimes repurpose them for other things. Uh, things were not thrown away as quickly and as readily as are nowadays. So East German recycling is something that uh, doesn't – it's not as common today. And I think part of that has to do with what's known as proprietary technologies – where, for example, a nowadays cars are more they're more computers with wheels than they are cars. And to be able to work on your own car at home is kind of frowned upon. They don't want you to do that because they own the patents and the copyrights for, for example, the source code that starts the engine or whatever. And so being able to tinker on cars at home is we're we're sort of moving away from that here. And in the GDR, if you didn't work on your own car, you were out of luck. I mean, you really, you really had to know how to tinker with and fix your own vehicle because, you know, the Trabant, for example, or the, the Wattburg, they weren't exactly the most reliable cars out there. So 
if uh, something happened on the road and you broke down and you needed to fix it, or let's say you got lucky and you managed to get home with it, but it didn't start anymore, uh, you had to know how to make that car operate with the material you had handy. And this could, I mean, goodness, I've I've seen pictures of tubbies with, um, or actually, no, sorry, uh, in in. In Cuba, I, I've seen pictures of, of old 50s-era Chevys where the motor has been completely replaced with that of a, a, of a, a lathe motor, for example. So the car still runs, but uh, they had to get really creative with how to keep it running. Yeah, I, d- I know a number of uh, Trabant owners in the UK, and um, they they tell me that you know they, they can be quite a reliable vehicle, and they're certainly a lot easier to repair and fix than a than a modern vehicle and i think they almost enjoy part of that as the uh, challenge of owning oh i think that has to come with the territory (laughs) you sure sure you can make them reliable but at the end of the day old cars require a lot of tender love and care i mean we've we've one of the questions i had was did you think there was anything good about the communist regimes and we've sort of covered that to to some degree but was there anything you think that they got right well generally try to avoid black and white paradigms because they they leave out the nuances that make up our day-to-day lives and even with regimes and ideologies like communism there are aspects of it which sounded very good and there are aspects of it which were also not not very good i mean you know the east germany signed the uh, the charter on human rights and was that 72 to 73 i think and does that mean they actually adhered what was written in the Charter of Human Rights? No. In practice, no. In theory, yes, but in practice, no. To say if there's anything good or bad, I would say that every system that we have ever created, whether they are democracies, whether they are free societies, whether they are closed societies or hardcore Stalinistic North Korea-level dictatorships, they have certain trade-offs. They have, I mean, it's hard to imagine what kind of benefits North Korea has for their citizens, but you have to look at it from the lens of a North Korean, what benefits existed. And of course, it's all based on lies and propaganda largely, but um, was there anything beneficial to the East German citizens? Well, I would say absolutely. Otherwise, these systems wouldn't be able to operate, right? The thing is, there is still the matter of people have to consent to being governed and they will allow you to get away with a lot. And depending on the culture and the value system and how indoctrinated the, the people and the children are in a given dictatorship, those may be different. Um, But I, I guess some that people might understand that were, I guess, decent about the the GDR or other socialist systems would be to say that their appeals to humanity, I think, is definitely something that was was very admirable. But reality, of course, is different from what they preached. You know, I'd like to say, I'd like to point out, actually, that the Stalinist system of public show trials and executions and mass deportations, it did transform in the 60s and 70s. And it transformed away from mass brutalization, uh, partially uh, for practical reasons, but 
also because, you know, especially with East Germany, they wanted to be accepted as a respected nation in the community of nations and specifically the West. And so they couldn't just have a 1953 style tanks rolling in the street and shooting protesters kind of a regime anymore. They had to change that outlook to be more accepted. So they had to do certain things, uh, of course, promote what they thought was good, but also they had to change their mode of oppression. And that's something that we need to keep in mind when we look at dictatorships is even though they may appear to be cleaner than they are, what are, you know, what forms of oppression are they using to control their citizens? So, well, to answer your point, the healthcare system in the GDR wasn't all too bad. I mean, it, it did suffer from sh- uh, shortages, but everyone did have universal health care. Uh, you also had uh, free education for children. Women were able to work, although I would definitely say that East Germany was not a society for feminism. Um, it was, well, if you want to go into that, we certainly can, but feminism was not really something that went along with the state. Um, their logic was we don't need feminism, but uh, that's that's uh, another uh, that's another story right there. But um, I think yeah. life was also a lot slower there. Family values were much more important to people living in socialist countries than they are in the West. They were less materialistic, which of course meant the time you spent consuming uh, what you would well what you do here consuming would be time spent with family there, and uh, you know. Those happy memories with friends and family, those are part of the experience that they had living under that regime. And if you didn't stick out or do anything bad, and you grow up in a system where you were close to your mother and your father, you were close to your sisters, your brothers, so on and so forth, and your friends, then yeah, I mean, that sounds like a very pleasant life. Uh, Of course, underneath all that is always the reality that East Germany was an oppressive police state. And if you didn't fit in, what happened to those people that didn't belong or that didn't fit in or that didn't go along with what the system wanted them to, right? And, you know, the GDR also offered things like paid vacation, which was at that time coming out of World War II, uh, German workers never really experienced paid vacations. I mean, the Nazis did a similar program with KDF, the Kauf der Freude. Um, but, you know, that was a 12-year period, and not a lot of workers were able to go on those KDF vacations. And so ordinary workers that ended up growing up in the GDR, they ended up being able to go on holiday in the Soviet Union, in the Eastern Bloc. And even though it was restricted, you know, there, there were still good aspects about living an ordinary life in the GDR and other Eastern Bloc countries, you know, with varying degrees, of course, because at the end of the day, uh, Ceausescu's Romania is not the GDR, is not Poland, right? They're all very unique in and amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, with East Germany, you, you mentioned, you know, the tanks on the streets in 53, and then they were trying to become a more Western-friendly uh, nation. But then you get examples of somewhere like Poland with, uh you know strikers being shot in the 1970s for example but poland more recognized perhaps in the west than than east germany yeah generally i think that uh, east german resistance um is not well the, 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 the problem is especially between east and west germany the relationship was very very complex uh, people forget that 
East Germany and West Germany were involved in what is by, well, I mean, for the lack of a better term, it's human trafficking, uh, the selling of political prisoners to the West. Uh, that, that, I mean, that is <laughs> commodifying your enemies to some extent. Uh, but I think the East Germans were also the people largely responsible for the revolutions that overthrew the communist system. And I think people need to give them credit for that because, and this is one point that I'd like to make that uh, today uh, dictatorships and regimes that want to suppress their opponents, they follow the model that was pioneered during the Cold War. And I mentioned the term earlier, the East Germans called it Zersetzung. And uh, if you look up the definition for Zersetzung, it's been translated to mean to exterminate, but it would be more apt to say to corrode someone into non-existence over a period of time. And this is where I would say psychological operations plays a role. And this is what the Stasi's tactics evolved into, right? They, they changed from public show trials, mass arrests, uh, to spiriting people away um, and breaking them psychologically in various forms. And I know you've had some people on your podcast that have experienced forms of Tzazetsung. Uh, one person that comes to mind is, uh, I'm sure you remember, I'm going to give him a shout out here, uh, uh, one of our, uh, a good friend of mine, Todd Anton, who spent... Uh, the 4th yeah. of July at, in an East German border checkpoint. I mean, that, what he experiences is a form of Tzersetzung. And because East Germany and a lot of the other Warsaw Pact countries wanted to be more respected in the West, you, they had to change the form of oppression of how they dealt with their dissidents. And so this form, Tzersetzung, was based on a literally... Uh, if you watch The Life of Others, there's actually a, a segment in there where um, the, the Stasi men's boss actually mentions it quite openly, a doctoral dissertation on how to psychologically break people based on their personality profile. And, you know, this can involve anything from, well, I'm not going to name names here for, you know, because they, in the interest of their privacy, but I know of stories where, for example, a, a woman was being targeted by the Stasi because one of her relatives had escaped and, and they thought she had some involvement with this. And they targeted her friends, knowing that they would not do a good job spying on her, to spy on her. And she caught wind that her friends were spying on her for the Stasi uh, through their not-so-subtle means of trying to figure out what she was thinking about and trying to steer a conversation towards saying something anti-government. And she got very paranoid because she was one that was more on the introverted side of the spectrum. And so she, over the course of several years, started alienating herself from all of her friends. And it evolved to a point where the Stasi would break into her apartment uh, and leave clues that they were there, very subtle ones. They would move some things around ever so slightly, just enough for her to notice that they had been there. And this made her so paranoid that she would not leave her apartment. And to that extent, the Stasi realized that when you looked out of her apartment window, you could see a parking spot. And from that parking spot, you could look right up into her apartment. So on an eight-hour rotating shift, they had Stasi agents park their car or stand right there in that uh, viewpoint 
So anytime she looked out her window, whether it was at two in the morning or 12 in the afternoon, some Stasi agent would be staring up at her window right back at her, no matter what time of day. And the regrettable side of the story is that she uh, became so distraught over this that she ended up committing suicide shortly before the wall fell. And her suicide is an example of Tezetsu, because she was slowly corroded away psychologically over a period of time until she wiped herself out. That way, the government had plausible deniability saying, well, she alienated herself from her friends, she was antisocial, and she was kind of strange, and if you talk to her friends, they would agree that she was kind of odd. If anyone ever from the West wanted to ask about her death, they would be able to say, well, she was clearly mentally ill, she wasn't well, and her suicide only makes sense just because she rejected socialism, right? She was an unhappy person for that reason. And, you know, the Soviets actually, I think it was 67 or 76, I don't remember exactly now, but they used the sciences, the psychiatry specifically, to create a category of mental illness. And this is, of course, what the Stasi did as well, but the way they treated it was a little differently, where they would take dissidents and lock them up in mental wards rather than throwing them in jail because of what they called um, lazy schizophrenia or, or creeping schizophrenia, where, uh, as they defined it, uh, basically, you have lazy schizophrenia if you don't really show any outward signs of it, uh, are completely rational, uh, intellectual even, but are anti-government and anti-socialist. And so they use those psych uh, psychological quirks of being anti-government to justify their incarceration, in this case, in a mental ward. And even... Brezhnev's brother was locked up in a mental ward for psychological reasons. Um, the reasoning was, of course, different. If you read uh, Brezhneva, the the uh, the daughter's uh, biography about what happened, um, it was because he was saying a lot of anti or anti government things, and they couldn't have uh, the brother of the most powerful man in the country at the time saying anti-Soviet things to the public, which would you know, naturally discredit the regime. So they put him for many, mm. many months without releasing him voluntarily uh, into a psych ward. And, and that was something that East Germans knew they could do as well, right? So they would put people in prison. They would take him out of prison. They would make it impossible for them to get a job. And if you don't work in East Germany for more than three months, you're considered anti-social. And that means you're criticizing the ideology and the state in a way by not working. So you would be rearrested, and this would happen over and over and over and over again. And ultimately, the, the idea was to break you to the point where you either took care of yourself or you could be sold to the West. And this form of psychological destruction of individuals, that is the modern way dictatorships at least present themselves on the outside mm. it's it's interesting what what you were saying there about the 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 stasi techniques of of coercion as well because obviously they they were using things like you know 
if you don't become an informer for us, your child won't go to university or your wife will lose their job and and those sort of techniques. And we you know, you mentioned intelligence services, I think right at the right at the start of our conversation. Is there did the West use some of those techniques or learn from some of those techniques and perhaps use them still to the to the present day? That is a very, very good question. And I've been asked this once before, and uh, it's this is, of course, again, a very delicate subject, which is, of course, the nature of what the museum does and kind of what my research does as well, by, by extension. Yeah. Um, regrettably, and I think we have to look at cultural communities again, subcultures in this case. I, I said at the beginning that World War II was the war of the soldier and the Cold War was the war of the spy. And I think we have to actually ask ourselves, what does that mean? Because at the end of the day, we have to look back at our intelligence community. And I use the term community intentionally here, not just because that's what they call themselves an aggregate, but also because that's what they are. There is a certain community that has a culture. And while every country has a intelligence community of one kind or another that does all kinds of clandestine activities, the spirit of ideological subversion is what the Russians called it. That is something that exists across the board. I would say even here in the West, we have intelligence services that use similar techniques and tactics to change the nature of warfare in general. If you look at warfare now, you'll find out, just as an example, um, just, uh, just so you see what I mean by this, there is an advantage, and, and, and again, uh, we, we can do a whole other podcast just about this. If you look at the difference between what a military is allowed to do and what an intelligence service is allowed to do, an intelligence service can get away with a lot more. In the United States, the military operates under Title 10, whereas the the CIA and and Co. We'll leave it at that. We've got a lot of agencies out here. They operate under what's called Title 50, and and this, you know, the the cliche would be uh, the license to kill, right? But what that means is, for example, and and um, I think this will put it into context for you. The death of Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was in a country that we are not at war with. He was found in Pakistan. And so while the SEAL teams were sent in to kill Osama bin Laden, the SEAL teams were not operating under Title 10. They were operating under a CIA operation because only that way would it have been perfectly legitimate to allow an operation like the taking out of someone notorious like Osama bin Laden to happen. The military could not have done this because it would have violated the uh, the Geneva Convention, uh, among many other treaties that we have signed. And so you can get away with doing things by putting them under the intelligence community in one form or another to get what you want done. So the SEAL teams were actually operating under CIA, uh, not under the military or the Pentagon. And so that is uh, something that is definitely from the Cold War period. The Cold War changed the nature of warfare in a number of senses. And one of them is covert action. And 
um, I have to really say, at least from the, the, the Soviet contribution to this, is ideological subversion. And do Western intelligence agencies use this? Well, yes, I would say absolutely we do, because it, this is, again, it's a very you have to kind of know where to look to see it. Uh, I would say Operation Gladio, which is another Cold War, uh, I'm going to call it a poison pill because uh, the consequences of Gladio are still felt. Um, uh, are you familiar with that operation? I am. This is the stay behind uh, units, but they well, there was various uses for them in in other forms as well correct um the the history of gladio is very much a history of the cold war and this is something that in various forms still goes on and there is a uh, I, I you have to look at this from an from an angle of in, in, I guess the intelligence community to a certain extent, there's a lot of secret technology and secret um, projects and plans, right? Um, this is, and this is again what I mean by culture and mindset. Uh, dictatorships have this as well. The West, uh, Western countries have these as well. And I think the intelligence communities of the world do too. They have a certain mindset on how they approach things, right? So, during the Cold War, the mindset was we must prevent the spread of communism at all costs. And so this meant that anything can be justified to prevent the spread of communism. And in the early years of the Cold War, Italy was seen as a country that was on the brink of falling into the Soviet camp. Right? The, the Communist Party in, uh, in Italy was very strong. And there were, of course, a number of interest groups that were not necessarily happy with the idea of having Italy fall to communism. One would be the Vatican. Another would be, of course, the United States. And, of course, the right-wing and conservative elements uh, in Italian politics that wanted to prevent at all costs the rise of communism in Italy. Beyond that, Gladio expanded to other nations in Europe as well. The problem is... Uh, you have mafia connections with Gladio, you have Vatican connections to Gladio, and CIA connections to Gladio as well. And you will notice that Gladio was used in acts of terrorism in Italy to blame these acts of terrorism on leftist organizations and communists to prevent the communists from rising to power. And and uh, mind you, I'm speaking in, in very broad terms here because there's a lot of detail I have to leave out, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, no, that's so. If anyone's listening, that's you know, but but there's so much more to this. Yes, there is indeed yeah. uh, a lot more to this than we'll be able to cover in in a single podcast. A, a very worthy episode of the whole Gladio story. To oh be my gosh, honestly, you could do an entire season on Gladio alone because uh, you know, even yeah. when when the CIA became what we know as the CIA, it was founded at a time where the federal expenditures or the the budgets were already passed for the various agencies of the government, which meant the CIA didn't actually have any money to start off with. So how do they get it? Well, uh, we have seen ways of how they acquire necessary funds. The OSS leadership uh, during World War II still had connections to the Italian 
specifically the Sicilian mafia. And so they were using mob connections, uh, shell companies, the Vatican Bank, among other things, to do a, uh, for the lack of a better term, a drugs for guns money laundering operation to create the budget that would be used to supply and sustain Operation Gladio. And, you know, all of this stuff sounds extremely illegal, controversial, and, you know, just bad. Well, again, you have to look at this from a ter- from a standpoint of uh, the culture and mindset of these groups that are tasked to prevent communism from spreading. I think um, someone that, that someone said this quite well who studies uh, the U.S. intelligence services, uh, Annie Jacobson. She uh, she's an author. She's written many many books on uh, the Pentagon, on Area 51 and whatnot. Shout out to her um, for, for, uh, for doing that, that groundbreaking research. Um, she asked a, a very important question. And I think this is, this is the way we should maybe interpret this rather than saying, is it good or is it bad? Yes, that is a part of the debate. And yes, we should ask those questions too, because there's always a moral component to this. But I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, is it necessary? Because Operation Gladio was deemed necessary, but the fallout and the, the, the bloodshed and the empowering of the mafia in Italy and creating drug running rings that supplied weapons to Chiang Kai-shek to fight the communists, which of course was a double game, but in any case, uh, the, the drugs for gun schemes with, with the Chinese forces back then to smuggle opium back to the United States uh, to create, you know, for example, heroin, opium, all that stuff was funneled back to the United States. The intelligence community has its hands in some of these activities. And, you know, the, the, the Soviets, of course, when they, when they caught on to this, you know, they, they were aware that these things were going on and they tried to make people aware of this by saying, oh, look at the evils of capitalism, right? And this is where I have to bring back ideological subversion. Because this was the probably the most important function of the KGB was what was known as active measures or ideological subversion. And people, you know, they, when they think of MI6, FBI, CIA, or those kinds of things, they think of, you know, James Bond, spy thrillers. That's a very small component of what the intelligence community does and ditto KGB and ditto Stasi for that matter and the Securitate right and all the other agencies um, their main objective was because uh, one thing that the Soviets realized is they cannot afford financially and economically I think the collapse of the Soviet Union proved this quite quite clearly they can we the United States outspent the Soviet Union in terms of military expenditures. And the Soviets realized that they could not keep up, especially in a closed-off economic block that can only trade in and amongst itself, well, you know, as effective as possible. And in order to offset the expenditures of raising a massive army with thousands of tanks and airplanes and a huge and expensive nuclear missile arsenal, what are other ways of fighting wars? 
Well, the best way to fight a war is to not even fight it at all. And so you end up with things like proxy wars. And the Soviet Union fought several proxy wars. Um, well, I guess we'd call them the hot points of the Cold War, right? The, the, the Korean War is an example of that. The, the Vietnam War is an example of that. The invasion of Afghanistan could be seen as another example of that as well. But what is most effective is to not fight in the first place. But to demoralize a country by slowly over time changing the moral and social axioms that guide the philosophy and, well, really how those societies function, demoralize them until they start subverting their own ideology themselves. And this is something that the KGB was was, uh, attempting to do during the Cold War. They would for example, invite renowned Western political scientists, uh, professors from esteemed universities to the Soviet Union that seemed to the KGB as trustworthy and would probably go along with what the Soviets wanted them to say. Uh, You could argue that Dean Reed was an extension of this as well because he was ideologically speaking in line with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc but um, I, I'm going to have to use a, a Leninist term here called they, these kinds of people that promoted Soviet interests were useless idiots or useful idiots. Rather, these useful idiots would go to the Soviet Union. Uh, they would be shown the wonders of communism and socialist labor uh, only really to be given a propaganda tour. It's what if you go to North Korea on the official tour, that's what you're getting. You're getting the official propaganda Mm. tour of the country, right? And the Soviets would do this as well. And they would come back to the US or to England or wherever else, and they would write articles about their experiences in the Soviet Union. And um, I think his name is Yuri Bezmenov. He uh, gave an example in 1985 of uh, a ideological subversion campaign that, that sort of it didn't backfire, but it was a mistake on the behalf of the KGB. Their censors didn't catch this. But he showed a, an article that was published in a magazine, a, a prominent American magazine. And he says, if you look at this magazine and this glowing review of the Soviet Union, we uh, showed him around. And here is one picture that we uh, allowed them to use for this article uh, that showed children on a playground. And if you look closely, you'll see, you know, children kind of solemn expressions sitting on a slide or on a, on a jungle gym, uh, you know, playing on the equipment there. You would think that it's just an ordinary playground. But what they didn't tell them and what they didn't say uh, and what the article obviously didn't cover because the guy that wrote it ultimately didn't know what he was looking at was that he was looking at a holding facility for the children of dissidents that were arrested for political dissent. And if you looked at the picture, you could see in the background a very high wall with some glass shards sticking out and some barbed wire. And that would have been the key indicator, which you know the censors overlooked, of that is actually a, a mini camp or a gulag-esque orphanage for children. That is brilliant stuff. I'm my head is struggling to keep up with the flow of ideas you're possibly <laughs> here. Well, no, no, not at all, not at all. Oh, I, you know, thanks again for uh, for taking the time to do this.
Yeah, I mean, I, that was a really interesting uh, chat there. As I said, I'm struggling to absorb all the ideas you gave me there, so I'm uh, not sure how I'd do in one of your lectures. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com and we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.